when you feel that fear, instead of letting it paralyze you, actually try to channel it into the energy that you need and the motivation that you need to push through, make that decision anyway, and get excited about what is on the other end of that fear. You're listening to Your Financial Planner Now What, the podcast to help you fast track your career by bringing you meaningful conversations on topics that influence new financial planners, their careers, and the lives of their clients. Today, we're joined by Anne McCabe Triana, a certified financial planning professional and chartered retirement planning counselor. Anne started her career immediately looking for clients and shares her insights and what she's learned throughout that process. Anne has been in financial services for over 10 years and her experience has taught her so much about the financial planning process and about being a business owner. Straight ahead, Anne gives her two cents on starting your own financial planning practice, providing value to your clients, and how to navigate client emotions when dealing with money. Today's podcast is brought to you by Signature Investors. Signature is a national network of independent advisory firms committed to developing the next generation of financial advisors and creating sustainable businesses to serve clients and their families for years to come. Signature's advisor team model provides a blueprint for establishing a team, including various defined career paths from internships to lead advisor positions. To download this blueprint, visit adviceteams.com forward slash FPA and learn how to start building your team today. Well, thanks for joining us today, Anne. Thank you for having me, Anna. So I am really excited for people to hear your story. Uh, But how did you get into the financial planning and wealth management business? I randomly fell into it uh, right out of college. So I worked in banking right after I graduated high school and throughout college. And when I graduated college, I had an idea of what I think I would do. And that was to work in economic development in Latin America Uh, So I studied Latin American studies and economics in college. I I speak Spanish fluently. So I've always been drawn to Latin America. And I thought that I would, you know, go down there and and work on economic development. And I had a professor in college who sat down with me when I was about to graduate and asked me what my plans were. And he actually worked for the Inter-American Development Bank which is like the World Bank, but just focused in Latin America. And long story short, he basically told me that he didn't think that I should go in that direction because he thought that I would be very unhappy with uh, sort of the bureaucracy that um, is is part of that organization and just just economic development in, in Latin America in general. So I did at that point what every college student who was completely lost did. I put my resume online and sort of waited for companies to call me. And I had some interesting opportunities. But the one that really caught my attention was from, at that time, American Express Financial Advisors, which very shortly um, after became Ameriprise Financial. And so I went in for an interview. There were probably 60 other people there for the interview. Um, And it was a whole process. But that is inevitably how I ended up becoming an advisor. I was offered the job and uh, went to study for my licenses and then went into production. And so when you went into production, was it one of the deals where you're supposed to make a list of your 200 closest family and friends and kind of start with them? It was, but I did not, I I did not do that. I made the list and, um, but I didn't feel right going to my family and friends uh, knowing that I knew absolutely nothing. And so I really took to cold calling and doing these lunch presentations that we would do. And I I hustled as much as I possibly could so that they wouldn't actually force me to touch base with my 
my friends and family. So I'm lucky that I didn't actually have to use that as a marketing strategy, but it absolutely was uh, very much one of the main marketing strategies that they preferred. And so what did that look like when you're talking about hustling and cold calling? Like, what was that like? And I'm assuming you're 22, 23 at this point. I was 22. Yeah, I was 22. Um, It looks like a lot of hours and a lot of no's. Um, You had to develop a very thick skin over a very short period of time. Because remember, you actually really don't know anything. You're on the phone calling people who are decades older than you because we were really trying to focus on people who were thinking about retirement. And you sound like you're 12, right? You you have the knowledge level of a 12-year-old for financial services. So it's really, really challenging. And I, I look back to some of the initial clients that I acquired and that still work with me today. And first of all, I'm just in awe at their generosity. And I'm grateful that they gave me an opportunity. But I think really the only reason they gave me an opportunity is because somewhere deep down, they knew that I, I was a good person and I was an honest person and I wasn't going to, to try to hurt them in any way. But aside from that, you know, there's not really a lot of compelling reasons to... <laughs> that I could look back on anyway for for someone to hire me. So it was was really, really challenging. And so what kept you going? I mean, I've heard lots of stories where people are just saying, I can't, I can't do this. But what kept you doing that? Yeah, that's a really, really good question. And it's something I've reflected on a lot because I can tell you that multiple times in my first three years, probably, um, I was one day away from calling it quits. I mean, multiple times I can tell you that it just was so hard. I was working so many hours. I wasn't making a lot of money. It, you know, I had this question a lot of times, like, what am I doing? And, and is all this worth it? And the only thing that kept me going was I would acquire a new client and I would make a promise to this client and I would get excited about working on their case. And again, I would be so grateful that they were entrusting their financial planning to me that that was the only thing that stopped me from quitting because I had just made this commitment, just made this promise to this family or this individual who had hired me. How could I turn them? You know, how could I disappoint them? And how could I quit at that point? And I just, you know, I look back and you add up one client acquisition with another client acquisition with another client acquisition. And it just got me through. And I think probably around year three or four, I finally started feeling a little bit more confident in what I was, was doing. And so that confidence in what you were doing, did that just come through experience or kind of, how did you get better at doing investments or financial planning? I made it a point to, to educate myself as much as I possibly could. I had a mentor early on who I am still very close with to this day. And he said to me, you know, you're, you're not going to be able to know everything. He had been in the business for probably 20 years at that point, And he was telling me even 20 years in, he would learn new things on a regular basis. So he first said, you know, try not to learn everything right away because you're just not going to be able to do that. And if you spend all day reading and trying to learn everything you possibly can about the industry, that means you're not out trying to meet people. And if you're not out trying to meet people, you're not going to be acquiring clients. You're not going to have anyone to share this knowledge with, and you're going to fail out of the business. So I tried to balance 
my my thirst for wanting to know as much as I possibly can and and learning and growing with also making sure I was actually out there talking to people. But I would spend my weekends reading magazines like Barron's and um, I would read the Wall Street Journal every morning and just try to immerse myself in the vocabulary. And I wanted to be able to know what was going on and be able to have um, intelligent conversations with people when I met them. So I think for me, it was a balance of wanting to learn and spending my free time really reading books and, and magazines and articles about the industry, but also not spending that precious time during the day that you can't, you, I could have been on the phones cold calling, or I could have been doing a lunch presentation or out networking. You talked about the, you said 60 or 90 people who went in for that interview. How many of the people that you started with were still in the business, you know, in three years? Oh gosh. Um, Probably, definitely less than 10. I want to say probably seven or so of us were still there of my class. Yeah. After three years, most of the people would, um, most of the people would actually leave the industry. They would go into a completely different direction. Some, yeah, some people left being an advisor and and went to get a, a job, right. That was still in the industry. But I would say most people got burnt out from the industry and, and just had a very bad taste in their mouth and, you know, became a teacher or, um, went into a completely different industry. Okay. So now you have, you've been in financial services for 10 plus years at this point. Yeah. I've been in, since I've been in production, a licensed advisor, it's been about, yeah, 12 years plus my banking experience. But again, I started that right out of high school. And so looking back now at the cold calling, like, what are your thoughts on that? Like, is that an effective way to start a business today? Or like, it's not, what would you change if you were starting over like tomorrow? It's just not, (laughs) let's just be real. I mean, I'm sure you get cold called all the time. I do too. No, I, I just, if you, if, if you're not coming to me with a warm, referral introduction. I mean, occasionally I'll get a compelling email that grabs my attention. That's a cold email, but am I ever taking action on it? No, because I have no idea who this person is who's reaching out to me. So no, if I were starting now today, I think absolutely cold calling is not the way to do it. And even when I started, so I went into production in 2006, that was sort of the beginning of, um, the do not call list becoming really popular and people figuring that out. And so I think that even when I was cold calling it, probably looking back, wasn't the most effective use of my time. But again, I didn't want to go to my natural market. So I was very motivated to make, you know, cold calling work. And I don't know how many hundreds of dials I would make on a daily basis, but we had this whole matrix, right? Of how many meetings we had to schedule and how many dials we had to make. And we had to report on the numbers on a weekly basis um, I'm also pretty competitive. So I never wanted to walk into that Friday morning meeting looking like a slacker. You know? So I made sure that, you know, I hit my numbers on a weekly basis. Um, but no, I think if I were starting today, cold calling would not be the, uh, the, the way I would market. Oh, that's funny. And we'll talk a little bit more about kind of what you kind of transitioned to away from cold calling and, and kind of what that transition looked like for you. But I'm interested. So you started production in 2006. So 2008 was just two years away. So you hit that in your second or third year of, you know, the Great Recession. 
What was that like as a young advisor? And what did you learn through that process? It's almost uh, inexplicable just how difficult and challenging and chaotic that time was. But I look back at that time and I'm so grateful for that experience so early on in my career. This was a once in most of our lifetime, hopefully, um, our lifetime experiences from a, a recession and a market sell-off perspective. And I just remember complete and utter chaos and fear. And I remember portfolios, right? I mean, you know, for from 2006 to the top of 2007, so about a year, every investment I put my clients in had done well. And if you looked at Morningstar reports looking back, you know, sure, there were years here and there where things were down. 2001 was obviously a, um, a challenging year from a market perspective. But uh, for the most part, things looked really rosy on Morningstar reports. And so to answer your question about what I learned, I think first I learned to be very, very sensitive to the downside. I mean, I saw in real life how losing money actually hurts more than making money feels good. Right. It's, it's one of the behavioral finance principles. Um, people do not like that feeling of losing money and they, they're, they get really terrified. The other thing I learned was to help people try to manage their emotions. I mean, I, I had a client during the financial crisis. No joke. Every single Friday, he would call me every single Friday and he would try to convince me of why we needed to sell out of his portfolio and go to cash. And every Friday I would have this conversation with him and I'd walk him off the ledge <laughs> until the next Friday he would call again and we'd have the same conversation. So learning how to help people deal with the emotional aspect of investing and financial planning was one of the largest takeaways I had from that time. And it's one of the things that I use on a daily basis. Um, still today. When you say that, that financial planning and you use it on a daily basis, like, what do you mean? Can you, can you talk a little bit more about that? Sure. So if you um, are familiar with behavioral finance, which is this fascinating, relatively new body of, of research in our industry, it's, you know, it's, it's basically um, the difference between logically what we know we should do from a financial perspective and emotionally how we actually end up reacting and so if you take a market downturn, for example, especially the worst downturn in any of our lifetimes, logically, you've heard a million times before, oh, well, you should buy low and you should sell high. So if the market's selling off, you shouldn't be thinking about selling. You should be thinking about buying. So logically, you know that that's what you are, quote unquote, supposed to do. But what happens is fear and very strong emotions come into play and they make you scared and they make you, uh, or they allow you, if you, if you let them, they allow you to make decisions that are completely the opposite of what you're supposed to. So it's helping clients kind of take a step back and take a pause and take a deep breath and assess the situation objectively and try to make educated, um, logical decisions and try not to make emotional decisions. So you kind of, you go through that experience and were you able to find clients in the market downturn or were you more just helping your current clients manage that process? Actually, it was one of the most amazing client acquisition times of my career, <laughs> <laughs> which is maybe counter counterintuitive, but 
I think it's my opinion that when the market goes down, our client acquisition actually goes up. Right now, you can be a monkey and you can throw a dartboard at you can throw a dart at a dartboard and you can make money, right? It is not hard to make money in the markets right now. And so people who are either doing their own investments, they're do it do it yourselfers, and they're feeling like, oh my gosh, this money management thing, this investment thing is a breeze. Like I should open a hedge fund. I'm so good. Right. They, they just, they, they feel like they've got it because everything is going up. Um, when the market goes down, you have people who are do it yourself investors all of a sudden, all of a sudden realizing, Oh man, maybe I should get professional help. And then you also have people who have been working with their advisor for a, a while and they're, they're not so dissatisfied that they're motivated to make a change but they're just sort of blah about the relationship, right? And it's going to take something like the market selling off and the advisor not returning phone calls or not proactively communicating. It's going to take something like that to motivate them to make a change. So back to the financial crisis, you had a combination of clients who were potentially managing their own investments and lost a lot of money. They were maybe fully invested in stocks and you know lost... 38% 38% or so in, in 2008, or you had people who were dissatisfied with their advisor, but it took something dramatic like the financial crisis to motivate them to make a change. So I had amazing client acquisition during that time. And I tell advisors today, I'm like, I'm, I'm looking forward to the next sell-off because number one, you know, we can buy things a little bit cheaper than we're able to get them now. And number two, there is going to be so much money movement. It's going to be an amazing opportunity from a practice growth perspective as well. Oh, I love that perspective. And really, yeah. How do, how do we position our companies well? And again, it, like you said, it all comes back down to client servicing and doing the, what's best for our clients. It does. It does. And it it also is about proactively talking to prospective clients right now who may not be motivated to make a change, but you want to be the first call that they make when they are motivated to make a change for whatever that reason is, right? You want, you want to make sure that you are in front of them so that when the market sells off or when their advisor screws up for the last time or doesn't, you know, doesn't return a phone call that you're the first person they think of in your position, that client may not come over today or tomorrow, but that will be your client uh, in the near future for sure. So you're at Ameriprise. I, you're not there anymore. So what kind of prompted you <laughs> to look for other solutions? Yeah. Um, so I, I was at Ameriprise and I think I was there for four years and um, I felt like I learned a lot. I am, I'm so grateful to Ameriprise for the foundation that I got um, for the training. I mean, one of the things that I still to this day is sort of a, I have a model calendar and I make sure I book time for working on my financial planning cases. And I don't book as much time anymore on the sort of practice growth piece of it. I probably should book more time on that. Um, but I'm, I'm grateful to Ameriprise for the, the foundation that I got for the training that I got also for the belief in financial planning, which is something that I still very strongly believe in. I got to a point where I felt like I, I wanted to see what else was out there and I wanted to improve my knowledge and my skills on the, on the investment management front. 
And so it happened to be that I had been recruited by UBS to uh, move part of my book. Uh, not really a ton of my book um, made sense for me to move over. But um, so I was recruited by UBS and I thought, you know, UBS is exactly what I needed to fill the gap in in my skills and in my knowledge. Um, they were a super strong, you know, wealth management, global wealth management um, firm. And I actually had been talking to someone over there as well about potentially partnering. And so I moved from Ameriprise over to UBS and I ended up partnering with this person. We were partners for um, five years. And so that was why I decided to make the move from Ameriprise. And so again, like you're saying, it kind of goes back to those relationships and building up those even professional relationships. Oh, yeah. And so were you able to take a lot of your clients from Ameriprise? Have they... A lot of your clients followed you through the various transitions that you've made. They have. And that's another thing I am eternally grateful to them for. So I didn't invite everybody to come with me from Ameriprise to UBS just because it didn't make a lot of, of sense just based on you know what I was doing for specific clients. But the majority of clients who I have asked to come with me from firm to firm have have graciously done that. And, and that's a big thing to ask a client to do to, to repaper their account and, you know, to lose all the history from the old firm. And, and I, I realize that it's a, a large commitment that they're making, but I'm very grateful to say that most clients have, have come with me. And even when I went independent from UBS and then switched broker dealers, um, the majority of them have, have followed me. I've had a lot of questions lately on uh, what advice would you give when you're making that move? Um, about managing your client relationships. So I'll ask you that, like, as you've made these transitions, what did you do well, or what would be your advice to somebody looking to make those transitions with clients? So I think that even before you are deciding to make a move, it's really important that you sell yourself versus you selling the company that you represent. Yes. So when I was at Ameriprise, I don't think that very many people hired me because of the really cool Ameriprise financial commercials that were on TV, you know? And when I was at UBS, we had a handful of people that worked with UBS because they were, they were international clients and UBS had a super strong international presence, but it was a handful. The majority of people who decided to hire me and work with me, it was because of me and not because of the firm behind me. So I would say to any advisors out there who are even noodling, right, potentially thinking about making a move in the future, make sure that you consistently reinforce that the value that you bring to the table is not the sign that's on your building, but it's you. It's you as a person. It's how much you care about that relationship. It's that you are going to do everything in your power to help those clients reach their financial goals. So I think that's something that I did pretty well is I I didn't sell UBS or Ameriprise or Wells. You know, I sold me and what I was bringing to the table. And that's something that takes a while, right? You can't just flip a switch and decide all of a sudden, oh, I'm not going to talk about my firm as much anymore. I'm going to talk about what I bring to the table. But in my experience, people hire you because of you. They don't hire you because of the company behind you. Um, so I think that that's something that I, uh, that I did well. Looking back at what I would have changed, um, I only ended up being at UBS for about a year. And so when I got to UBS, things started 
getting really bad again from, um, this was in 2009. And so we had, we had been, you know, through a financial crisis at that point, but UBS had their own set of, um, unique challenges throughout that, that time period. And so looking back, I would have, instead of going from Ameriprise to UBS, I probably would have gone Ameriprise independent, which is what I ended up doing about a year later anyway. And it would have been just one less move that my, my I had to make and that my clients had to make. So just really being thoughtful um, about, you know, what is your end game and what what is really important to you and what are you trying to do? In hindsight, I, the, the person that I decided to partner with and I, at that point, it was the, the reason we didn't go independent was all about fear. It was all about, um, you know, being scared that our clients wouldn't come with us. And, uh, and so I wish that, you know, looking back, I wish that we would have just gone independent, but I'm also a huge believer in not having any regrets and looking back at every single experience that I've had in my life and being able to identify what I can learn from the experience. So I wouldn't do anything differently. Um, but maybe that's advice that would be helpful for people who are, you know, considering a couple options because it, it was, it was way more work than it probably needed to be. And those moves are a lot of work. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> they are. But I love that. I, that comment on fear of, you know, I mean, I know for me personally, like I've, I almost have this, like, I notice that fear now when they come into decisions. And it's again, kind of like you're talking about with clients about how the behavioral finance side of it from us as a business owner, even if we're not a business owner, you're in your career. If you get that sense of like, you're doing something because you're afraid it's like, that's really a time to pause, step back and say, do I really need to push through this? Yeah, absolutely. And I think looking, looking back on times in your life when you've been fearful and you've done it anyway, and how that feels, how it turned out. And, um, I had a friend recently who, who's a business owner, who's actually in the technology space. And he told me that every time he feels fearful about a business decision that he's going to make, he actually gets really excited about it because he can look back in his career and he he's owned his business for over 20 years now. He can look back in it at his career and every time he's felt that fear and he's pushed through it and he's done it anyway, it's been the catalyst for the next wave of growth that his company experienced. So I thought that was a really cool mindset that when you feel that fear, instead of letting it paralyze you, actually try to channel it into the energy that you need and the motivation that you need to push through, make that decision anyway, and get excited about what is on the other end of that fear. Yep. I love that. Some of the best things in life are on the other side of fear. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So you said that you ended up working with a partner and then now you're not working you're by yourself, or I mean, you have a staff, but you're not in a partnership relationship anymore, right? That is correct. <laughs> so can I just have you? That was another, another, <laughs> another exciting learning experience. <laughs> so let's talk about how uh, partnerships. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so let's talk about I don't know, maybe a case for partnerships and maybe a case against partnerships, not against partnerships, but you've kind of been through both of those. Can you just reflect back on why you went into partnerships? Kind of what were the positive things about that? But then, you know, what ultimately led you to back away from a partnership and do it on your own? Sure. 
I think that the idea of a partnership is supposed to be that you bring two people together and one plus one equals three, as opposed to one plus one equaling two. And in the partnerships that I've seen, the successful partnerships that I've seen that are few and far between, but they they do exist, great partnerships absolutely exist. The ones that I've observed that are successful, that is absolutely the equation. And sometimes one plus one equals four as opposed to three. So that's the benefit to having um, a partnership is we all have strengths and we all have weaknesses. And if you can get really clear on your strengths and also what you really enjoy doing in this business, because we all wear lots of hats. So if you can really get clear on what is it that you are really exceptional at and what is it that you really enjoy, and you can find someone who complements your weaknesses and their strengths are your weaknesses, then game on, right? It, it makes so much sense. So that's that's on paper what I think is are some of the benefits of partnerships. But you're bringing two human beings together, right? So there are all sorts of challenges. I was in my partnership for five years. And ultimately, why I decided that it was no longer going to work for me is we had different ideas around how to run and grow the business. So clearly that's kind of a big deal, right? <laughs> if you're running a business with someone and you have um, different visions of, you know, where you want to take this. So that was a problem. Um, we also had different, uh, let's say levels of um, commitment to just actually kind of putting in the, the hours. So I, I was willing to work a lot and, and hustle a lot and worked long hours. And um, my business partner just was at a different stage in his life where he wasn't as willing to do that. So that was a problem because you, you build sort of resentment for that person and you feel like, Oh my gosh, I'm here busting my tail. And the other person is not, um, is not meeting you there. And so that's challenging, right? To maintain over a long period of time, the same level of commitment and work ethic, I think is, is challenging. And so it ultimately came down to, um, you know, this feeling that I had gotten to a place where I learned a lot from being in that partnership. And I can look back now and be grateful for that experience. Again, I wouldn't do it any differently. But I got to a point where I knew if I wanted to uh, reach my own potential in both personally as well as professionally, I needed to let that go and I needed to move forward on my own. So I'm making that sound really easy right now. It was a very long <laughs> process. Um, <laughs> it was definitely, you know, very stressful in there. And our split was not the most amicable, amicable split. We... Um, there were a lot of challenges, but moving through that and again, looking back, um, I'm grateful for the experience and I learned, I learned a lot. So now I'm in a place where I'm, I'm the only advisor in my practice and I have three people who work with me who have different responsibilities, um, in the practice. And I feel really great about my team and the synergies and, I feel like for the most part during the day, we're working on things that we enjoy and that we're really good at and we complement each other really well. Um, one of the things, you know, you and I have talked about um, being a mom in this business. And so one of the things that was challenging is I, I just had my second 
son. Um, he's eight months old now. When I had my first son, I was in a business partnership. So when I had the baby, I was able to take more time off. And, you know, I, I knew that things were going to get handled at the office. This time around, I have amazing staff who was able to handle almost everything. But at the end of the day, clients want you for some things. And so that was that was a unique challenge that I just recently went through. But you you get through it and it's all worth it. And um, again, all part of, of the process of learning and growing. So a couple questions off of this. Um, another thing that I'm hearing a lot from advisors or people who are starting out is that they really have this desire to be on a team and that's preventing them from starting their own practice or doing something um, along those lines because they're like, we want that support. What what would you tell that person? I actually agree with that. I mean, if I were starting out today, brand new, I think about this a lot. I, I wonder, I ask myself, would I go the same path that I went down? And based on what I know now, the answer is no. I would absolutely try to team up with, um, you know, a, a nice, functional, successful team that, you know, works well together. And I would try to learn as much as I possibly can. And if, if I was, I felt really strongly about having my own practice in the future and, and starting that journey, then I would. Um, but I think it makes a lot of sense to join a team, especially if you're just starting out because there's, there's so much infrastructure, ideally, hopefully already built there that you can learn a lot and, um, and grow a lot from that experience and kind of see where, where it leads you. So you mentioned having, um, two different babies in your time as an, as an advisor. (laughs) Um, you know, there's a lot of talk about women in the profession and I know, gosh, we could probably spend a whole several hours on, on just that topic. A whole interview. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Yeah. But I think it's a really interesting. So looking through having your own business, going on maternity leave, being a mom in the business and just the expectations of that moms have, um, and business owners, can you just reflect on that a bit? Yeah. And, and what would you want women who are coming into the profession to know? So one of the things that makes me very sad about our industry is anytime I see a report about just how terrible, terribly we're doing as an industry in terms of attracting females um, into the business. It's It's been about the same number for the last three decades. And at least the reports that I've seen recently don't look like we're making any sort of improvements there. And that makes me very sad because in my experience, I think women are really good at this business and um, we're, we're empathetic. And I think that we are, um, for the most part, you know, women have um, high levels of compassion and integrity. And so I, I, we can really kick butt and take names in this industry. Yeah. So it makes me very sad that more women don't get in the industry. One of the things that um, I love about this business, and this is more so if you run your own practice than it is if you are an employee, so that that's just a reality. But one of the things I love is that you absolutely, once you get to a certain point, you've built up a book of business, and and you're not you're not having to hustle as much as you did at the beginning. Not that you ever stop hustling, but you're not having to hustle as much as you did at the beginning. You manage your own time and you manage your own calendar. So if I know that I have a, my older son is six, he's in kindergarten now. If I know that he has something going on at school, a field trip or um, a play or an event, I can book that in my calendar and we're, we're, I'm not seeing clients during that time. I mean, I have full control over what my calendar 
looks like when I see clients, when I don't see clients, if I want to take time off. Um, and so that's a huge benefit, I think, especially not that it's less of a benefit for, for men or for dads, but I think it's a huge benefit, especially for moms is, is we do get to, to manage our, our time and we can really be there for activities. And, you know, if kids get sick, you know, oftentimes, even if you have a very hands-on dad, the kids, the kids want mommy when they're sick. So, you know, we have a uh, flexibility to manage our time, which I think is, is hugely important. And so for maternity leave, you know, with running your business, you said you were in a partnership for the first one and not the second one. Um, were you able to take time off or what did that look like for you? <laughs> yes and no. Um, I, I, I'm the type of person who likes to be connected. Even when I go on vacation, I, I like to check my email. I just find that if I completely check out for a week, it just produces more anxiety in me than it, than is worth it. I know some people who absolutely just want to check out and I think that's awesome. You just have to know what works for you. So for me, when I had my second child, I did not check in, did not check email, had no idea if the office was blowing up, right? For three days, which may not seem like a lot of time, but for me, that was a big deal. I was, I was completely present at home with the baby, with my older son, my husband, my family. Um, I was completely present for those three days. And then I would start, you know, I started checking my email more and checking in more. I did not see anyone, any clients. I did not have any meetings or any conference calls for the first six weeks. So I was at home. I would come into the office here and there. Um, but for the most part, I was at home um, for those first six weeks. And then for the next um, probably month and a half, I would see meetings as need be. So if we had a client who had an emergency and had a you know time constraint decision they had to make, I would see that meeting. I would take a conference call. I would meet with prospective clients that we were referred to, but we weren't actively trying to schedule review meetings during that time. It was more just on a one-off basis. And, um, and then when I, I came back, so it was, it was about three months that I had a modified schedule, let's say. Um, and then after three months, I came back, you know, full time, I got all my reviews in that I should have seen during that time and, and kind of came back to my normal, uh, schedule. Very cool. Yeah. I mean, the beauty, the, the beauty, the beauty of technology, I'll just say these days when I had my first son, you couldn't work remotely as much. He, he again, is six years old. So you, we just couldn't do as much back then. Um, and I was with Wells, so there were limitations on what I could do from home. But now it's it's just so great because you can, you can do so much from home. I mean, there's even ways that you can make phone calls and your clients, it looks like you're calling from the office. So there, there's just so much more flexibility that we have these days uh, from a technology perspective to leverage if you do need to take extended time off, like for having a baby or just a sabbatical, <laughs> you know, it doesn't have to be just yeah. a baby. Wait, 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 sorry. What's that? <laughs> right. Can you explain what that, can you define what a sabbatical is? That sounds amazing. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so you started your own. Yes. So you left your partnership. You moved, did you move to LPL or were you guys already at LPL? No, we were with Wells. So I moved, I, I split my partnership and moved broker dealers all in one fail swoop, you know, cause why not? If right. you're going to, if you're going to, if you're going to have change, just have big change and be done with it. Rip the bandaid off. <laughs> yep. Exactly. Yeah. And so when you moved to LPL, you started your company or you uh, branded it as, is it Kiro private wealth? 
Hero Private Wealth, yes. So can you talk about that name, how you came up with that, and and kind of just the bigger branding of your firm and what you want to be for your clients? So when I had made the decision that I was going to split my partnership and I was going to, um, you know, basically start my own firm and rebrand um, solo, I, I really wanted a name that meant something. So my business partner and I, when we started our company, it was like our last names together, which is fine. And that works for a lot of people. But I really wanted my name to, to mean something. I wanted to be able to tell a story about it. And I wanted it to, to really be um, impactful. And so I started asking clients as I was in the process of making the decision to, to, to split the partnership and start my firm. I asked clients a couple of questions. Why did they hire me? What did they like about working with me? Why did they continue to work with me? Why did they stay with me? Right? Because clients are actively making a decision to continue to work with you on an ongoing basis. And I got lots of different answers, but the answer that I really cared kept coming up over and over again. So clients would say, you know, when we met with you, we could just tell that you care about us or you care about what you do or um, you care about our money and you care about our financial plan and the investments and all that. But you also care about us as people and you care about our family. And so Again, the term to care kept coming up over and over again. And I thought, okay, what can I do with that? Because that was really the theme that came out of these conversations with clients. So I went onto the Google, right? And I Googled how to say to care in different languages. And Curo came up. It's, it's Latin for to care. And I thought that is absolutely perfect. And so that's how I decided on. Um, on Kiro. And, and what I want our brand to stand for is exactly that. I don't want to be all things to all people. I don't want to work with every single prospective client who comes in the door. And in fact, gratefully, I'm at a point now where if I don't feel like there's a good connection with a prospective client in that initial meeting, I will graciously let them know that I don't think we're a good fit. And I will, you know, kindly decline the business. And so that's what I want us to be about is that we, we care about our clients. We care about everything that we do. And we are completely committed to working with people with who, with whom we feel a great connection, with whom we share values. We want, we want our clients to care about us too. We want to work with people who appreciate what we do and who listen to our advice and who are kind and respectful to us as well. So that's what I, um, I hope our brand is all about, and I work on that, you know, on a daily basis to make sure that we are upholding that. Mm, I like that, and and keeping that culture within your firm. I think that's such an interesting conversation of how do we keep culture? How do you maintain that culture through your staff and your employees in every interaction? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think it's really important initially before you even hire anyone to to do a good job of assessing that those values, right? Because um, people will say a lot of things in an interview. Um, but it's important to to make sure that you are hiring people that will not only say what you want to hear in an initial interview, but will live your culture every single day in the interactions they have with your clients. So how many staff members do you have now? Three. Three staff members. Very, very cool. Mm-hmm. And how many clients do you have? We have about 100 households right now. Oh, that's great. So what's next for you? Are you looking to grow your practice? Are you interested in other endeavors or what does the future hold for you? Yeah, I am definitely always looking to grow the practice. 
Um, I was told by a mentor early on in the business that you're either growing in this business or you're dying. And so I don't want to die. So I'm going to continue to grow. Um, <laughs> but I, I want to, I want to grow in the right way. As I said, I'm very committed to making sure that we bring on clients who share our values and who appreciate what we do and with whom we feel a great connection. So I want to grow. Um, not just for the sake of growing, but I want to grow those types of clients that we're looking to to work for. So definitely growth is on the horizon. I think um, in the near future, I'd like to bring on an associate financial advisor who can be the relationship manager for a, a number of our clients and also help with um, growing our, our business. So the way that I see this working is... Uh, we, we have an investment minimum right now, and I'd actually like to bring that down, but would like for the associate advisor to be able to really be the lead relationship manager on those um, with those clients. So I, I'd like to be able to work with more people. And I feel like if I have that associate advisor, we would be able to, to you know work with and help more people, which is exciting. And then I'm also potentially interested if, if the right opportunity came my way in, in practice acquisition. Um, I think that there is so much opportunity in our industry. I think the average age of a financial advisor in the U.S. right now is around 60. So there are a lot of advisors who are looking to retire. And um, I absolutely would be open to um, acquiring you know, a practice or two if, if we found the right one. Um, so that would be you know, a growth goal over the next probably five years or so. So looking at new planners, what would be your main piece of advice for people who are entering the profession today? So I guess it would depend on their role. Um, if their role was to find clients, I would pass on the same advice that I got, which is if you're sitting behind your computer or behind a book all day or trying to learn everything that you possibly need to learn before you put yourself out there, don't do that, right? Because you're you're never going to make it if you don't put yourself out there and you don't try to find clients. Um, if if your role is, is not really trying to find clients and is not really um, more of a business development role or you're kind of doing the work, I would say to constantly be networking. So join the financial planning association, um, XYPN, if, if, uh, you can do that, join organizations that are near you so that you can network with colleagues and potentially people who can offer you opportunities in the future, but put yourself out there and develop those relationships. Even if they can't do anything or you can't do anything for them today, you never know where those relationships will lead you. Networking, which is not something we've we've talked about, but networking has been hugely beneficial for me and my practice. And one of the things that I did when I was cold calling and hating it the first few years is I I laid out what I wanted by my intermediate term and my long-term marketing strategies to look like. And I knew that I had to, to cold call to make it and to hit my numbers and to not get fired. So I had to keep cold calling, even though I despised it. But I knew that one day I wouldn't have to do the cold calling. And so I wanted to be really clear on what those intermediate and long-term uh, marketing uh, strategies looked like. And for me, networking was a huge one. So I right away started trying to build relationships with CPAs and attorneys, and I joined a BNI group, and I knew that those relationships wouldn't pay off right away. 
but 50% of our new business every single year comes from centers of influence. It comes from CPAs and attorneys and real estate agents and loan officers. And roughly 50% of our new business comes from client referrals. So um, I would just you know, network and try to build those relationships uh, as early as you possibly can. That's really interesting. You talked about your marketing plan, your short-term, medium-term, and then long-term marketing plan. Yeah. So your short-term was like the cold calling, medium-term was that the networking, and like what would be the long-term? Yeah. So my my short-term was the cold calling and those lunch presentations I mentioned, which was very much an Ameriprise thing. It was called Lunch and Learns. Um, so that was my short term. My intermediate term was um, more of the networking. It was also speaking engagements. I really enjoy speaking. And so I wanted that to become more part of my um, intermediate term. And then longer term was um, more media. So one of the things I, I started doing is I tried to get more TV interviews. And I was actually on a show that we had here in DC called Washington Business Report. I was on quarterly um, just talking about the outlook of the markets and the economy. And that was really fun until the station got acquired by a, um, a national, um, a national TV company and they, they weren't as interested in the micro sort of DC, um, assessment. So they canceled that show, unfortunately. But yeah, so the intermediate and long term is, is networking and, um, potentially, you know, meet more media opportunities as well as, um, practice acquisition. Great. Well, thank you for joining us, Anne. Thank you for having me, Hannah. It's been a pleasure. Today's podcast is brought to you by Signature Investors. Signature is a national network of independent advisory firms committed to developing the next generation of financial advisors and creating sustainable businesses to serve clients and their families for years to come. Signature's advisor team model provides a blueprint for establishing a team, including various defined career paths from internships to lead advisor positions. To download this blueprint, visit adviceteams.com forward slash FPA and learn how to start building your team today. As always, thanks to our guest, Anne, for joining us this week. Don't be afraid to reach out to us or any of our guests to let us know your thoughts or if anything here has helped you. We hope that this podcast and our guests help you to better navigate the financial planning profession, boost your career, and help you grow as a financial planner for your clients. The FPA Activate Facebook community is no different, and we really hope to see you there. Thanks for listening.